Chapter 9 of The Road to Mandalay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Road to Mandalay by Bithia Mary Crocker. Chapter 9 The Blankshire. The Blankshire was a full and well known boat. Not a few of the passengers had made several trips in her, and some, as they met in saloon and corridors, exchanged loud, hearty greetings and hailed one another as old friends. These were chiefly planters and officials from Ceylon, southern India, and Burma, who herded in parties both at meals and on deck. It was not to be expected that Shafto would see one familiar face, and he felt completely out of it, as he took a seat at a drafty table between two elderly people, whose interest was entirely concentrated upon their meals and the weather. The second day proved rough and wet, and the smoking room was crowded. Here Shafto made an acquaintance with a well-set-up, weather-beaten young man, his neighbor. Finding they had similar tastes with regard to cigars and boots, they proceeded to cement an acquaintance. Hoskins was the name of Shafto's companion, and after half an hour's lively talk, he exclaimed, "'I say, look here. We must dig you out of the potter's field and bring you to our table.' "'What do you mean by the potter's field?' Why, to bury strangers in. We bury dull folk and such like in the table near the door, but I'll speak to the head steward and get you moved. And before the next meal, Shafto's transition was an accomplished fact, and he found himself one of a merry and congenial circle. In his novel and detached position, he realized a sense of independence. He was breathing a new existence, an exhilarating atmosphere, and enjoying every hour of the day. At table and in the smoke room, he picked up a certain amount of useful information respecting Burma, listened to a many don't with polite attention, and was offered the address of a fairly good chummery in Rangoon. As he could play bridge without letting down his partners, was active at deck sports, and invariably cheery and obliging, he soon gained that effervescent prize, board ship popularity. Here was a different fellow from Douglas Shafto of Malahide. He seemed to have cast off a load of care, the cramped, monotonous life, his mother's hard indifference, the octopus-like Kazi, all had slipped from his shoulders and were figuratively buried and in the heaving, dark blue sea. What delicious hours of tranquil ease were enjoyed in a steamer chair, hours when he looked on the past five years as a distant and fading dream. As he paced the deck with a companion, he learned many strange things, odd bits of half-told stories, confidences respecting some girl, or some ambition, and now and then a warning. "'You are so new and green to the East,' said Hoskins, his first friend, a police officer returning from short leave. "'You had better keep your eyes skinned. Rangoon is not like India, but a roaring busy seaport, where every soul is on the make. You will find various elements there, besides British and Burmese. Tribes from Upper Burma, Tibetans, Hindus, Malays, Chinese, and above all, Germans. They do an enormous trade.' and have many substantial firms and houses, and put through as much business as, or more than, we do ourselves. No job is too small, no order too insignificant for their prompt attention. They have agents all over the country, who pull strings in Wolfram and Ruby Mines and have a finger in every mortal thing. I'll say this for them, they're most awfully keen and industrious, and stick at nothing to earn the nimble rupee, underselling what they can and grabbing contracts and trade secrets. Some of these days they will mine us out of Burma. So I see they needn't go to you for a character, remarked Shafto. 
Oh, they're not all tarred with the same brush. I have some good pals in the German club. Fellows that are as straight as a die. Is this your first journey out of England? Yes, bar winter sports in Switzerland when I was a kid. Well, you will see a small bit of the world this trip. As soon as we collect the passengers at Marseille, and once the awnings and the moon are up, things will begin to hum. How do you mean hum? We shall have sports, dances, concerts. This has always been a gay ship, and the purser is a rare hustler. We are due at Marseille tomorrow morning, and we take in a cargo of the lazy, luxurious folk who abhor the bay and have traveled over land. I'd have done the same, only I'm frightfully hard up. Three months at home having a good time comes pretty expensive. I hope you will be a fixture in Rangoon? I'm afraid not. I'm going straight up to Mandalay. But I shall be down later, and meanwhile, I'll do my best to settle you in that chummery. I'll send a line to Fitzgerald of my service. He lives there, a rattling Irishman, with lots of brains in his handsome head, and a good sort. There's also Roscoe, a clever oddity, and McNabb of the Irrawaddy Flotilla, a wonderful golfer. Most of the fellows in business in Rangoon are Scotch. Murray was in the same chummery. There were four chums till May. And number four has gone home? He has. To his long home. Worst luck. He broke his neck fooling over a log jump. On this fresh October morning, the Blankshire lay moored at her usual berth in Marseille Harbor, and the overland passengers were streaming aboard in great numbers. Hoskins and Shafto, leaning over the bulwarks, watched the long procession of travelers, followed by porters, bearing their light baggage. There are a good few, you see, remarked Hoskins. This is a popular ship and date. We won't have an empty berth, anyway, as far as the canal. Most of this crowd, waving a hand, these with maids and valets, are bound for Egypt. There will be a big contingent for Colombo and southern India. I'm a bit curious to see our own little lot. Ah, here comes one of them. He indicated a stout, imposing person who was majestically ascending the gangway. That's Lady Puffle, the consort of one of our bigwigs. Very official and dignified. Keeps old Fluffy in grand order. The next, the tall, handsome woman, is Mrs. Pomeroy, wife of the judicial commissioner, a real lady, and, hello, she's brought out a daughter. Not as far as I can see up to her mother's sample. Too much nose and too much bone. And next we have Mrs. Flint, of Flint & Co., a big house. She gives the best dinners in Rangoon. The little fair lady with the small dog is Mrs. Maitland, a wife of the general commanding in Burma, and the one with her must be her sister or sister-in-law. Here comes the great Otto Bernhard, junior partner in the house of Bernhard Brothers. As you see, a fine handsome man, with the most all-highest mustache, and also owns a heavenly tenor voice, but I would not trust him farther than I could throw him. And that would not be far, said Shafto. He weighs every ounce of fourteen stone. Yes, a big man in every way. Trades on his voice and his good looks, as well as in teak and patty, an unscrumptious devil where women are concerned. The lady he is escorting is Mrs. Lacey. You would not think to look at her, so slim, gracious, and smiling, that she is a noted man-eater. What do you mean? Well, perhaps the expression is a bit too strong. She has a subtle way of attracting mankind. It amuses her, and in the long run, does no harm. Wait till you see how they will collect about her on board, like flies round a pot of honey. Shall you be one of the flies? Possibly. I enjoy being fascinated, and I like honey. She's very amusing and dances like a moonbeam. Those are two coffee planters, wonderful pals and bridge players. And here comes a strange lady, probably a tourist, rich too. 
Shafto looked and saw a handsome gray-haired woman with a round, smiling face, wearing a long sable coat and an air of complacent prosperity. "'Why, for a wonder, I know her,' he declared. "'It's Mrs. Millward. Her sister was our neighbor at home. I've met her often.' "'Who is she?' "'A widow. Very rich, I believe. I think her daughter is married to a man in India or Burma. Is this the daughter following up the gangway?' "'No, I've never seen her before.' "'I say, what a pretty girl, and a ripping figure. "'Once seen, never forgotten, eh? "'When you have claimed the chaperone, "'you must present me to the young lady, "'especially as you are out of the running yourself.' "'Out of the running? What do you mean?' "'Merely that I happened to witness that tender parting at Tilbury, "'the little girl in the green hat who was crying her eyes out.' "'She was my cousin,' protested Shafto. "'Nothing more.' "'Oh, come,' rejoined Hoskins, with a knowing sidelong glance." "'Upon my honor, nothing whatever to me but that.' "'Well, I suppose I'm bound to take your word for it. "'But it looked uncommonly touching. "'So like the real thing, and yet merely a case of strong family affection. "'Yes, that's all. "'Well, let us descend and make ourselves presentable for lunch. "'Nothing like first impressions.' "'After lunch, when the newcomers had found their places and scattered about, "'watching the shores of France recede, "'Shafto approached Mrs. Millward and bowed himself before her. "'Why, Douglas!' she exclaimed. "'This is a surprise, a delightful surprise. "'What on earth are you doing here?' "'Making a voyage to Rangoon.' "'Rangoon? So am I. An amazing coincidence. "'Now come and sit down at once and tell me all about yourself.' "'I think you have heard all there is to know.' "'Yes, that you had become so distant and reserved "'and so like an oyster in its shell, "'and there was no getting you to tremen here. "'But I was not my own master. I was in an office.' My dear boy, where there's a will, there's a way. There is no way of taking leave, unless you wish to get the key of the street, he retorted with a laugh. And what takes you to Rangoon? A post in the big mercantile house. I have to thank Mr. Tremon here. I owe it to his interest. It's a splendid chance for me. Well, I'm sure you deserve it, my dear boy, if ever anyone did. You don't ask why I'm on the high seas. I'm en route to Mandalay. Ella is there. After I've paid her a visit, I'm going on to India to stay with your old friend Geoffrey. He and you are about the same age, are you not? Yes, where is he now? He's in the White Hazars at Lucknow. He was at Sandhurst with you, wasn't he? Shafto nodded, and the lady continued. I'm bringing out a girl, such a darling. She's down unpacking in our cabin, a dear child. Her mother is an old friend of mine. Her father was a rector of our parish. I drop her in Rangoon. Oh, do you? Her name is Sophie Lay, and she's going out to stay with an aunt, who's something of an invalid. Her husband is in business, a German, said to be rolling in money. That sounds all right. And Sophie can't speak a word of German, though French like a native, and she plays the piano delightfully. Her father died some years ago, and Mrs. Lay and the girls live in town, Chelsea. Not rich, but have enough to go on with, and are a very happy trio. One day a letter came from the German uncle asking for a niece, and, if possible, a musical niece, so Sophie was sent. Anyway, her sister is engaged to be married and was not available. My friend, Mrs. Lay, was very sorry to lose her girl, even for a year or so, but it seemed such a chance for Sophie to see the world and make friends with her rich and childless relatives. I expect she will have a good time in Burma? Bound to, for she's one of those fortunate people who make their own happiness. Here she comes. As she concluded, a tall, slim girl with a face of morning freshness wearing a rose-silk sports coat and fluttering white skirt, approached. 
and Shafto instantly realized that such a personality was likely to have a good time anywhere. Miss Lay's dark eyes were lovely, and she had a radiant smile. She smiled on Shafto when he was presented by her chaperone. Sophie, this is a most particular friend of mine. I've known him since he was in blouses, a boy with sticky fingers who refused to be kissed. Mr. Shafto, Miss Lay. Mrs. Millward was a handsome, impulsive, kind-hearted woman of 45. Her arched dark eyebrows and a wonderful natural complexion gave her a fictitious air of youth, slightly discounted by a comfortable and matronly figure. Some declared that her round face, short nose, and large eyes produced a resemblance to a well-to-do pussycat, but this was the voice of envy. She had a clever maid, dressed well, and with the exception of the loss of her husband, had never known a care. There was scarcely a line or a wrinkle on her charming soft face. Now, with her girl happily married and her boy in the army, she felt a free woman and was anxious to try her wings and her liberty. Though popular with rich and poor, she was by no means a perfect character. Extraordinarily indiscreet and rash in her confidences, there was no secret cupboard in her composition. She threw open all her mental stores and all those of her intimates. Aware of this failing, she would deplore it and say, don't tell me any important secrets, my dear, for I can never keep them in spite of my good resolutions. They will jump out and play among my latest news and good stories. That night in their cabin, as she and her charge talked and discussed their fellow passengers, the life history of Douglas was her principal topic. With considerable detail, she related his happy prospects and the shattering of these, told of his cultured father and odious underbred mother, whom she particularly detested spoke of his withdrawal from old friends, lest he might seem to sponge, and how, instead of being in the army serving his country like her own boy, enjoying his youth and a comfortable allowance, he was stuck in a gloomy city office, drawing a miserable salary and enduring the whims and temper of an empty-headed, selfish parent. "'She married again the other day,' added Mrs. Millward, a rich Jew. "'I'm not a word to say against the Jews, a marvelously clever race. In fact,' I think a little Jew blood gives brains, and as to riches, of course, there's no harm in them. But this Manasseh Levingson is so common and fat, and seems to reek of furniture polish and money. I've seen him at the Mulberry at tea, gobbling cakes like a glutton and making such a noise. Oh, what a contrast to Mr. Shafto, so aristocratic and so courteous. A man who had seemed almost a privilege to know. And in this strain, Mrs. Millward, reclining in her berth, chattered on whilst her companion brushed her heavy, dark hair and imbibed a strong feeling of interest and pity for the good-looking hero of her chaperone's impressive sketch. Quite unintentionally, this voluble lady had enlisted the mutual sympathy of these young people. She had laid, so to speak, a match. Whether a mutual liking would ignite it or not was uncertain, but the prospect was favorable. End of chapter 9